Welcome to the official podcast of the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. This campaign seeks to place clean water issues front and center in the year building up to the 2018 elections by urging every candidate running for public office to make a strong stand on critical issues affecting Michigan's waters. Using storytelling and music events across the state to amplify the groundswell of public support for clean water issues, this campaign is driven by Michiganders from all walks of life who share a similar priority, the protection of our water, a most vital resource. On this episode, we feature local public scholar and educator, Dr. Michelle S. Johnson. She shares the story of her upbringing and how it led to her work in environmental, racial, and economic justice. This episode has been generously sponsored by the Benzie Community Water Council. The mission of the Benzie Community Water Council is to ensure that the waters of the county and the northwest corner of the state remain subject to the public trust doctrine and are thus preserved and protected for the common good of the peoples and the ecosystems they serve. It is their intent to work with any citizen groups and government entities committed to the common purpose of maintaining safe, clean, and plentiful water for the equitable use of people, animals, and plants. BCWC's flagship event is the Benzie County Water Festival, which seeks to attract, entertain, educate, and activate individuals and groups within the community. The event, which has been held every year since 2011, features world-class Michigan musicians, speeches from water luminaries, interactive multimedia projects and presentations, artisan foods and beverages, workshops, visual art, theater and dance, children's activities, and connections to campaigns and projects to protect our water locally and address global challenges. Hi, I'm Michelle Susan Johnson. I am a native of Saginaw and a public scholar, particularly in the areas of space, place, and resistance. I'm currently a part-time instructor at Western Michigan University. We have just inaugurated our kind of rekindling of the African American Studies and African Studies program that had been on a hiatus for about seven years. And then as a result of student uh, activity, staff, and faculty that were really invested in the importance of um, telling the African American story from an academic perspective at Western, um, the program has started back up again. So we've just finished our first semester of that rekindled program and I am teaching their forms of black consciousness, looking at um, resistance toward freedom over the last, well, 400 years almost or so now. And so we are looking at from colonial United States up to the present, looking particularly at questions of space, place, and resistance um, for people like Du Bois and Zora Neale Hurston, Booker T. Washington, Barbara Smith, a whole host of folks. One of the key components of that class is to really identify what strategies, what resistant and liberatory strategies folks have used over the centuries to try to unlock and dismantle oppression from various perspectives. And so the primary focus for the class is one, to understand what strategies folks have implemented, but then to identify how those strategies might be able to be integrated and impl implemented in our current lives and the current situations that are faced by um, black people and, and quite frankly, uh, American culture more generally. 
ended up in Saginaw because my mom decided to um, relocate from the south side of Chicago on Stony Island um, at a very, um, she didn't leave that for that, but she left for personal reasons, but we left an area of Chicago that was really kind of burgeoning in a lot of ways. Um, there was a significant amount of um, black nationalist movement going on in the area. The Nation of Islam had just moved into the neighborhood. Um, you know, very conflicting stories my mother tells of um, a, a young Cassius Clay, um, soon to become Muhammad Ali, um, you know, kind of distributing the Final Call newspaper in the area. So um, it was an area that was had been a long-standing black community um, and was kind of redefining itself according to some of the kind of radical politics of that time, both kind of the radical and perhaps what people might think now is not so radical politics at the time. Um, and so we moved, again, for, for, uh, for personal reasons, to Saginaw. Um, Saginaw was an area that had some ancestry on my mother's side. Uh, they, uh, they'd been here probably three generations or so. Um, that line of the family came here um, through from Canada and also from the East Coast, um, you know, very much like other people did come here to um, uh, take advantage of the lumber industry and the extractive industry that was taking place here in the state of Michigan and engaged in part in the lumber industry and the farming industry in the area and um, kind of continued um, a long-standing, you know, hundreds of years tradition of um, taking the land and making it work for themselves. Um, not so much colonization going on here, but um, some of my mom's family came here you know, prior to 1619 and um, would be considered the founding fathers, though when we look at who they were, they were also responsible for heinous acts of massacre of indigenous people. Um, and so that's some of the line that comes here and establishes um, you know, at least my ancestry here in Saginaw. And so though my mother didn't grow up here, she grew up in Cass City. Um, when she came back to Michigan to be closer to her family, um, Saginaw was a better choice than Cass City, um, which she had grown up with as a very kind of racist, very narrow-minded community. Um, and so she decidedly um, moved here um, to avoid that, but to still be closer to family. And so then when we came, to, when we moved to Saginaw, I moved from a predominantly black community to one that was um, very much uh, um, a very primarily, at this point where I moved, we moved a primarily white community and one that was um, solidly working class or, you know, kind of working middle class. Um, most of the folks very much connected to the automobile industry. And the automobile industry was a huge presence. Um, quite literally, it was a, a, a massive nine-story structure across the street from the first place that we moved to as we moved from the south side of Chicago. Um, a giant um, metal smoke spewing loud 24 hours a day um, 
monstrosity in many ways, but one that um, it was very clear fueled and fed the people that were around me, not just the people in my neighborhood, um, but people in my community, you know, not necessarily people in my family. My, my immediate family um, did not work in the automobile industry. My family was, was more kind of connected to the education industry, which then, you know, was a, a kind of a companion industry to, um, to the automobile industry, but yet it was a huge presence. Like I said, it was across the street, it was massive. Um, as we know now, it took up 275 acres of land, um, several buildings, larger buildings, smaller buildings, administration buildings, and um, it was a looming presence. Um, not only kind of a, a visual, um, physical presence, but also a kind of um, airborne presence. Um, we lived in two different places, one on Salt Street, directly across the street, and then I moved around a lot. I lived in um, a couple of what I would call like the river neighborhoods connected to um, the automobile industry, but this this first one, we lived to kind of on one street and then later on another block over, and um, my memories are very, very vivid about the, um, the soot that was um, emitted from the plant and our uh, cars being covered sometimes with soot. In fact, people sometimes said that they they got rid of their cars. There was a kind of high turnover rate because this not only was this soot on the car, but it would start to eat away at the um, the finish of the car. Um, and so one can only understand or um, imagine what it, what else it ate away. Um, in the process as it landed. Um, I remember very clearly the lilac tree outside of our house right off of our porch um, covered in this soot that you would just kind of, you know, wipe it off to um, kind of leave a fingerprint of, um, of more clear, but I only say more clear because you couldn't really clear it. Um, and so, you know, those lilac trees were definitely working overtime to try to remove the carbon monoxide, which I imagine they never, you know, could never really achieve that. Um, there, I don't know that there have been any long-term studies of the po folks who lived in that neighborhood um, because this was an interesting uh, an interesting dynamic because this was not you know there were very few black people in that neighborhood there were um, a handful there were more um, Chicano or Mexican-American or Mexican people in the neighborhood um, from you know kind of various experiences um, but these were mostly working class white people that were um, living in this area um, and, you know, happy to do it and happy to um, quite often um, prevent or not be happy about other people of color moving into the area. Um, so it was a very ominous presence in um, in on the, on the Salt Street, King Street, the south side, um, southwest Michigan I mean, Southwest Saginaw side of our um, city. Um, but it wasn't the only place. You know, another place that I grew up um, was also on the east side over near the nodular plant over off the Saginaw River on, off of Washington. And um, if it was rough over where on Salt Street, it was even more toxic. Um, in that area, they dealt primarily in iron, so there was an, um, an enormous amount of emissions that were coming out of there. There were times where um, it was, you know, kind of difficult to breathe, but at the same time, um, this was the most vibrant area of black settlement just across the street from that, um, the 6th Street area, also the Potter Street area, where um, we had black folks who had, you know, very autonomous communities, um, you know, 
butcher shops and, and I'm, I'm a vegetarian but you know still that was a mark of something but we had grocery stores um, my aunt had a beauty shop there was a barber shop lawyers and dentists and you know it was a very self-contained community largely because there was segregation in the city so oftentimes our, our autonomous communities um, emerge in part out of um, the circumscribed relationships black folks have had with the community, but at the same time, people were choosing to live by each other um, for reasons of perhaps exclusion, but also for, uh, for reasons of autonomy and commitment to, um, to black community. Um, and so that area was a very, that right across the street from that, while we still have all of this kind of spewing pollution that's going on, we also have this very significant um, black community that is um, taking hold and had been taking hold pretty much since the um, automobile industry came through here, about 1915, 1918, when it starts coming through so many different places. Um, and so those two communities really very much shaped my understanding of, of so many things, understanding of space and place and race and class and environment and industry. Um, and so as I was trying to make sense of all these things, all these, you know, um, you know, th these kind of integrated or maybe not necessarily integrated experience, you know, intersectional is the, like the buzzword now, but, um, you know, these kind of interconnected um, oppressions, these interconnected circumscribed positions for myself and for the people who are around me, um, all of those really kind of conflated in my growing up experience. And, um, you know, it, it took me, a little while to kind of get away from Saginaw and go to college and go to Michigan State to really un understand the the systemic structures that were at play, um, though those um, those components were very much prevalent. I just don't think I necessarily had um, the names for it or the the you know hundreds of other theorists and writers and activists that um, perhaps could have helped me understand that experience as I was coming up. Um, so um, when I left here, um, those environmental issues were very prevalent and the connection between them and class and race were, were very significant. So that river that we have, our Saginaw River, that unlike very few places flows north, kind of like the Nile, there aren't a lot of rivers that do that, um, but that river became of kind of significant in terms of many stories emerging about it as I was growing up, you know, hearing about um, kind of unclear if it was GM or if it, who had maybe um, buried barrels of toxic waste in the banks of the Saginaw River and then when the river kind of comes along uh, over the course of erosion those kinds of things get um, revealed over time and then people you know hearing these like stories growing up of um, you know people scrambling around trying to figure out where this came from there's what, what's the culpability relation related to that and then you know not really remembering this when I that happening when I was growing up but doing oral testimonies later and hearing stories of folks that saying that in the 70s there were periods of time when our Saginaw River at least one winter would not freeze um, because it was so full of toxins and so so I don't know the whole story about that I've been asking folks to um, to kind of relay some of that and I, I hear you know there's this is kind of one of the stories that you hear from a number of people but people don't also other people don't remember it which I'm not surprised about because 
I don't remember it either. Um, so the river was this kind of place that you, people were fishing all the time on it, yet we knew um, kind of that s somehow that, that there was some toxicity involved. I don't even know if we had the term toxicity at the time. But the, the, um, where I lived, we were right on, the, you know, right near the river. The landfill, what we call the dumpers, right there, and um, that was a, a depository. Not, I don't even know if it was just for if Grand if General Motors was included in it, but I do know that we took our, our residential um, uh, waste to this place. And, um, you know, this is the 60s and the 70s, and this was still a time period where people were dumping their oil in the um, the drainage. And, you know, you changed your oil. If you learned how to change, at least when I learned how to change my oil, you didn't take your oil to a depository. You just dumped it into the sewer system. And we had this idea, I think, this kind of collective consciousness that you just, you know, you just flush it, you just, you know, d dump it. Um, so, you know, we all, who knows what was being dumped at that time or where it was going and how it was being um, um, kind of diverted. But we do know then that there were, you know, PCBs, horrendous number, amounts of PCBs being deposited into the sediment of the Saginaw River. Um, so, um, that this becomes this um, very kind of significant um, awareness, I think, that starts to happen here in Saginaw, that um, there needs to be something that changes. And so that um, you kind of simultaneous with me kind of coming back and le leaving and coming back a series of those experiences here in Saginaw, because I, I feel very strongly about this place, this home, um, Somewhere along in there, um, in 1998, there becomes an agreement between um, the city of Saginaw, Bay City, and General Motors, um, who in each of these um, entities face, um, and the, so, so, so each of these entities face folks that are suing them. So in this case, it's the United States, it's the state of Michigan, and the Chippewa tribe are um, seeking um, funding and uh, kind of damages for the the toxicity and the hazardous distribution um, as a result of um, these you know, these years, these like 75 years of presence um, of General Motors, and they come up with an agreement, a 10 million dollar agreement, um, to um, dredge the Saginaw River, um, and this is from Saginaw up to Bay City to dredge the Saginaw River of its PCBs um, to restore, preserve, and protect these areas. And so there's a a, a massive land acquisition. Um, some of those lands are connected to the state to try to um, to preserve these areas um, so that we start to then shift up after the plant closes in 2007. There's this scramble to kind of figure out what to do with this land. Um, uh, an element of, of General Motors called RACER, and I don't recall what it stands for, um, is charged with uh, um, kind of dispersing this land, not just what's happening here in Saginaw and Bay City, but kind of General Motors has a number of different holdings where these similar kinds of practices have been taking place. And so RACER's job then was to um, 
you know, figure out what to do with this land and how to, um, you know, slowly get rid of it. And so just this year in 2017, um, that land has been turned over to, I think, the city of Saginaw and the state of Michigan um, to become an urban park. And that urban park then, again, is seemingly um, following the trajectory of, you know, preserve, protect, and restore um, this area so that it's a place that um, people can inhabit again as visitors. Um, there's um, no clear sense quite yet that the... Um, the waste and the toxicity and the hazardous substances that are there can be permanently contained. Um, this is why it requires kind of a very long-term commitment to the area. Um, and so we will see what's happening. I think when, uh, what I'm excited about with this project that we're doing right now is it, it prompts me to ask more questions, to make more phone calls, to find out what the, what the next step is and to identify how far that $10 million could have possibly gone and you know, how we generate um, new ways to raise funds and protect, preserve, and um, restore. And so restoring, I think, is particularly important, though. Um, you know, preserving and protecting, the, you know, they're preserving and protecting that land. There are bald eagles who land there. There's, you know, there are a number of um, um, species that have found solace in that area. Um, and of course, that requires an, an ongoing commitment. That's, that's not something that can be just kind of written off in, in the course of a 10-year plan. That's a that's a commitment in perpetuity, it seems to me. Um, so I think this, as we start to um, urge um, potential lawmakers and existing lawmakers to think about our future, our future in water, our future in land here in Michigan, this is a really, uh, it, while this is certainly not the only place, there are so many places along the Saginaw River, the Flint River, the Cass River, the Shiawassee River, just in this area um, that um, I'm certain are demanding attention and um, that this also provides a really um, kind of cogent example of how we could, can potentially move forward in ways that um, create sustainable solutions for how we inhabit space. So, um, you know, my question to any um, future lawmakers or existing lawmakers is how do we take this, this concept of restoration and um, generate an economic model from that restoration? How do we say, what is it going to take to restore this land here along the Saginaw River? And how can we then create a model that other folks can replicate. How, if we are still struggling in Saginaw, if we're still struggling in Michigan to create jobs, then it makes absolute perfect sense to identify ways that we can generate industry that is um, providing solutions to the problems that our industry has created. Um, that's going to be our power because we are not the only ones that have created, um, you know, inches and inches of PCP deposits in our river. If we can figure out here in Saginaw and Michigan how to um, rectify that horrific situation that we've set up for ourselves and our descendants, then we're going to be ahead in an economic model. If we can figure out how, and because we can, I'm not even gonna say if, because we can figure out how to clean um, toxic land and, and uh, this, this land that has been, 
inundated with this hazardous substance, because we can figure out how to filter that, then we should absolutely be ahead um, of the country and ahead of the world on creating those kinds of mechanisms. And so we need our lawmakers to invest in um, sustainable research that's going on at places like Michigan State and the University of Michigan or um, you know individual folks that are doing wind turbine work that are maybe not necessarily connected to industry. We need to absolutely be ahead of the game on building the capacity of researchers to, um, to build an economic and sustainable infrastructure for us here in this state. Um, we need our lawmakers to um, support, while there are certainly um, deficits and chasms in science and the, the scientific model, um, we are also at a place where science and it's um, kind of the, the quantifiable um, connections that there are to our practices and um, toxic land and toxic water are, are um, very much identified. You know, we can see and we can measure the impact, um, particularly at this time when there is an anti-science um, tenor in our, at least in our administration, but, you know, that administration is supported by folks. Um, you know, this is the time for our, our, our policymakers to um, fully support science, to fully support science, sustainable science that's seeking solutions, to not pull science from schools, um, to not pull critical thinking from schools, because it's that critical thinking that makes us ask questions and seek answers. Um, so, you know, these are the things that I would ask of our lawmakers and our policymakers, either the ones, again, that exist now or the ones that intend to um, um, take a place where they speak for us and for those folks to remember that they, in speaking for a river, in speaking for a plot of land that is trying to and, um, and is probably doing its very best to recover from um, you know, a hundred years because, you know, we're not just suffering here um, in, you know, the area that we're speaking about from the automobile industry, but that area was also hit very hard by the lumber industry and the coal industry and its um, kind of sister industry of salt. Um, and so, our, our lawmakers need to kind of rethink the notions of land and river as industry um, and to think about how um, we can facilitate and build the capacity of those spaces to heal themselves um, because we know they have that and how we can facilitate that um, so that our work as, as voters um, needs to be to ask those questions, to me, ask those questions of ourselves, um, of how the practices that we take part in, the, um, the questions we don't ask, the things we don't want to know, um, the 300-page document we may not necessarily want to read, what answers are embedded in there that, um, and what answers or what questions are still unaddressed, you know, what, what, where do we go from here? And so I will, you know, as we approach 2018 and, you know, future elections, even be more stringent about asking those questions of these folks to say, you know, are you speaking for the river? Because when you speak for the river, um, we know because we're made up of water, uh, as all of the beings on this planet, um, 
that then you're going to fundamentally address the issues, social justice issues, if you fully address them. Not if you're just trying to establish the river as a cool boat launch and a, a place for the, you know, the middle class or the upper class to be able to, you know, have a view of this lovely historic Saginaw River. That's not the kind of way to restore the river and to restore kind of economic and sustainable um, relationships with the river and space. It's to make that space, make that river accessible to everybody in a sustainable way, um, not to just um, kind of let it be a place for the wealthy or the folks who can afford it or, you know, the folks who have a boat that they can launch, you know. Um, and if they're going to be launching boats, what are the environmental, what's the environmental impact is of boats, you know, on the Saginaw River? How do we measure that? And um, then again, as if we're thinking about economic sustainability, how do we create boats that don't pollute? Wow, what a great economic solution for Saginaw, Michigan, or Flint, Michigan, or Lansing, Michigan, any of these places that have been so significantly devastated by um, short-sighted industry. Um, so I think we're at a perfect opportunity and a very urgent opportunity um, to have these questions answered and these solutions put forward in ways that are viable and expected in our um, in our future. I mean, this is a, a perfect example of environmental justice um, because when we start to address uh, the impact, the environmental impact on our land, on our air, on our rivers, um, we automatically have to look at where those things are taking place, where these kind of um, pollutants are, are, are occurring. And nine times out of 10, we're going, when we go to those sites where we identify these, these um, kind of crimes against nature, there are also, um, you know, for lack of a better word, crimes against humanity. And those, humani those representatives of humanity quite often are poor people, are people of color, um, are people who um, are looking for an inexpensive place to live, which is very much similar to what we you know. We're moving from Chicago. My mother's starting over as a single mother at this time. Um, you know, where do you live? You live someplace that's really cheap. And where is it really cheap in the 1960s and the 1970s? is near the plants. Um, and so this is very much connected to economic justice, um, racial justice, um, and in many, you know, some cases probably even, you know, justice um, as it pertains to gender um, experiences. Um, but yeah, so, you know, the, these are the places where the terms economic justice emerge and environmental justice emerge um, because they're absolutely connected um, for folks, I think. And then, you know, inherent in environmental injustice almost always is some kind of racial injustice and, the you know, kind of looking at the ways in which people of color are circumscribed into particular space and those spaces are very often those spaces that are not deemed desirable for the, the you know, the average um, upwardly mobile, successful white American.
For those voters who have taken the initiative to set up town halls and town meetings, um, put this at the put environmental issues at the very you know top of the of the questions for folks. Um, alongside, you know, what are you doing for issues of racism and what are you doing for issues of health and education? The, you know, the we can't say well we got to deal with the, one of these things and then we can deal with another. So you know what to ask you the ask these um, potential politicians you know. What is your integrated plan for sustainable development um, as it as it connects to? And sustainability is being culturally sustainable, environmentally sustainable, economically sustainable. But you can't and you can't separate them out at all. So you know, demand answers, demand plans, demand strategies from the folks that are coming in. So it's not enough to say I, you know, I believe. Well, we all believe that our planet should be a place that sustains us. What what are you going to do about it? What have you done about it? Who are you partnering with? Who do you intend to partner with? What are the tables that you want to visit? Not, are, not what are the tables that you, what are the, who are the people you want to invite to your table? You know, where the, what tables are you going around and sitting at? Um, so that um, we have a real clear idea of like where folks are coming from and where they are at that moment um, and who they've connected with. So demand their, their collaborations, their past collaborations, demand um, records of their positions that they've taken. Um, black people and rivers and lakes are not somebody to sign up with, you know, in the last six months before your, um, your election or, your, or the campaign. Um, these are folks I wanna know what have you been doing prior to this? What's your position? What do you know about global warming? What do you know about PCBs over the long period of time? Um, what can we expect of you? Um, but really, like, what have you done at this point? Because if you haven't done anything at this point, then let's move on to somebody who has. And maybe they're not a, a veteran or a, a career politician, but they've done the work and they have the answers. Um, so if you don't have the answers, who does and how are you going to build the capacity for folks to be able to to do the work that needs to be done. And so these are the questions that we have to ask of our, our as voters. These are the demands that we have, or you know, maybe it's better to say expectations. Um, but you know, these are the standards. Um, and so as voters, we need to hold people to standards. We need to call them every day or go visit them at their offices in Lansing or if we have the opportunity and we're in DC go visit them there but call them hold them accountable email them hold town meetings um, and demand that they are taking a position um, and that they again that they have taken a position a history in this case I think is really important it's it cannot be something that people are just kind of picking up on because it's um, because they've heard of Enron you know um, you know what um, what what have you done before this moment um, and demand answers and to also as voters to um, check our own consumption, man. Um, you know, to identify how we play into the system that commodifies water. You know, um, how do we, you know, how many plastic bottles of water do we drink? Um, is that, the, is our plastic bottles of water the solution? Um, to really look at our own consumption um, because 
we have an enormous power of boycott. We have an enormous power um, being in the capitalist system to be able to generate power with our with our dollars and to expect more and demand more with, um, you know, in some cases, one of the primary powers that we have in this in this country, and that is how we spend our money. And so to be very, um, very serious ourselves when we think about how we consume and what we expect of our, our individual selves, because, um, you know, they're, they're not disconnected, you know. Uh, you know, how many lights do we leave on? You know, that all these all these components. How many cars do we purchase? You know, how often do we purchase a car? How often do we purchase a cell phone? You know, making some, you know, some really significant um, conscious relationships between those elements of industry that we know have environmental impact and being far more conscious of that um, and then being able to bring that to our lawmakers as well. It's not, it's not just the lawmakers, you know, it's us um, because we are the lawmakers, you know. Um, and so we need to check ourselves um, every day, a couple times a day. Do we really need this? You know, do we need this plastic bag? You know, do we, you know, can we, can we get, can we, this thing that we got to the cash register in our hand, can we get it to the car without taking a plastic bag? If we get it to the cash register without a bag, we can get it home without a bag. You know, little simple things like that. Um, so um, we can't expect any more of our policymakers than um, we're willing to do ourselves. People who are oppressed or beings who are oppressed or rivers who are oppressed, if, you know, if a river could you know, create an agenda, none of us have ever had the luxury of picking just one strategy. In fact, diversity in environmental issues, economically, culturally, we know that diversity and kind of multiple approaches work. And so we are at a position, and we always have been in a position, where we have to try every strategy that we have. Voting is one of those strategies. It's not the only strategy, and sometimes it's an absolutely kind of overwhelming strategy, but it is a strategy that works. We have um, examples over examples of the of places where people have asserted their um, their opinion, their call for justice in the ballots, and that is an absolutely important place to do it. People, you know, it's, be it's become cliche at this point. How many people died for us to be able to fight, to be able to have our voice heard? Um, and so that's not a um, it's not a right that is one to be dispensed with and to be taken lightly. Again, it's not the only one, right? So if you vote for, you know, whatever candidate and you don't do anything else after that, you don't check your spending, you don't check your consumerism, you don't check those people that you elected, um, then no, it's not going, if you don't protest, you know, all of those components, you have to, we, we have to, as a collective, do that. But voting is one of those things, not the only solution, but um, one of those places where we know, we see consistently, um, you know, it's going to become, you know, cliche almost to talk about what happened in Alabama recently, where, um, you know, it looked pretty daunting for, for black people and for anybody 
anybody who thought about justice, but black women came out and they voted in mass and they changed the tide of a pedophile. Um, and black men came out as well. And you know, leveraging those votes changes the tide of things. Um, the, like we would not have a civil rights movement of the the 60s if people didn't vote. Um, we would have a, we would have a movement for sure. Um, this is not to say that that was the only way to do it and that voting is the only way to do it, but we would not have the kind of same significant impact if people didn't really leverage the vote. Because when you start thinking about voting, you start recognizing that you have a voice and that every voice that an individual has has an impact. And so can, when we understand the power of one vote, vote, we understand the power of one person and the authenticity and the power of that individual to name their experience and to shape it. If you've resonated with what you've heard in this episode, we encourage you to get involved with the Clean Water Campaign for Michigan. Help us change the game from divide-and-conquer top-down politics to a grassroots community effort where people from all walks are united in pressuring anyone running for public office in Michigan to stand strong on clean water issues. Visit michigancleanwater.org to learn more and follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay connected. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.